You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday, September the 27th, broadcasting to you from County Kildare, from the Goffs Sail Ring, uh, day two of book one of the famous Orby Sail. The weather has not joined the party today. It is absolutely hosing down here, but all smiles around the place because yesterday produced some fantastic trade, notably €750,000 for a half-sister to state of rest. And like the multiple group one winner, she will be trained for an undisclosed client, but an established owner breeder by Joseph O'Brien. We're expecting that price to be exceeded today by a number of choice lots, potentially the sibling to the multiple group one winning Saffron Beach, potentially a very nicely bred lot by Frankel, and potentially, who knows, the full sibling to Fantastic Moon, lot 373, a filly, and that couldn't be more timely because Philip Stauffenberg, who bred Fantastic Moon, is as delighted as everybody else that this morning, that horse, the Deutsches Derby winner, has been supplemented. It is official now for the Qatar Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe at Longchamp on Sunday. Continuous, the St. Ledger winner, as expected, has also been supplemented. Spreewell has come out of the race. I've been speaking to one of Fantastic Moon's owners, the man behind Liberty Racing, Lars Wilhelm Baumgarten, and I asked him what it was that finally uh, push them to make the decision to supplement this horse for Europe's most prestigious race. Yeah, we decided uh, today after the gallop yesterday, the gallop was very, very good and he, he recovered faster than we expected after the premiere. And uh, the weather forecast is good in Paris. We can get good to soft ground and that's perfect for him. Yeah, there's much been made about him needing a sound surface or a fast surface. You, you evidently don't see it quite as simply as that. You think a bit of cut in the ground will be okay. Yeah, a bit of uh, a cut is okay for us, but not a soft or heavy ground. The derby ground was soft as well. The time was 240, over 2,400 meters. And the rain on Saturday was massive in Hamburg. So uh, soft ground, good to soft ground is okay. Soft ground and heavy ground is not our uh, idea for Sunday. So please talk to everybody who can help us for sun in Paris. Yeah, I think there's going to be plenty of sunshine in Paris and nice warm temperatures as well, which is good news for you. We have learned not to underestimate German horses in this race. Daydream won it in 2011 on very quick ground. We saw Torquato Tasso two years ago and then ran another fine race last year. You as a, a student of the German thoroughbred, how would you stack Fantastic Moon up against those horses at a, a relative stage of their careers? I think um, at this stage of the career, if you compare it with Daydream or Torcato Tasso, they are a little bit more in front of that because they won before the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe a group won against older horses. So we were second to Nations Pride in Munich over 2,000 meters and we won the Prix but that's a group two race. And um, yeah, okay, Peter Flame is a very good horse, but he was not 100% at this day. And so I think Daydream and Torcato Tasso um, were before the race a little bit higher than Fantastic Moon at this moment, but we we hope that we can be uh, uh, under the first six in this race. 
And am I right in thinking that one of your number in Liberty Racing has already won an arc with, with Daydream, is that right? That's right. Heiko Falls is a member of our syndicate. He's one of 22 shareholders in the syndicate and he won the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe with Daydream for Germany. And amongst your other members, uh, Gerhard Schoening, who we've had on the, the show before, who's been instrumental in reviving the fortunes of Hopgarten Racecourse. Yes, Gerhard Schoening is, uh, is a smart guy. He invests a lot in German racing and he is part of the syndicate this year. He uh, bought a share and uh, I'm very happy about this. And it's uh, his first derby winner with us. And that's the same for our president, for Michael Fesper. He's the president of German racing and he invested in his first horse in this syndicate, Liberty Racing 2021, 25,000 euro. And he is a derby winner as a starter in the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. It's a great story. Uh, we heard earlier in the week on this podcast from Henk Grover, who's made a massive impression the last few years. The same could be said about your, your trainer, Sarah Schneider, who is obviously making a, a big impact. What sets her apart? Sarah, is, uh, Sarah Steinbeck is a very good uh, trainer. She won uh, the, the Großer Preis from Baden last year with Mendocino. She uh, made a good job with Crest the Moon. He won a group race in France. And he is a boutique trainer with 25 to 30 horses, not more. And she is in the partnership with René Picholek. He won the arc with um, with Toccato Tasso. They are horse people. They know what to do is, and uh, I'm very happy with this connection. It sounds like you're incredibly excited about, about the weekend. I mean, my only question is why you weren't in the race already? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I have, a, I have a starter in the Prix de l'Opera as well. Um, I'm the breeder from Muskoka. She won the German, German Oaks this year and what can you say i'm i'm sometimes i'm not uh, uh, knowing what's going on because uh, if you are a small breeder with two uh, mares and you win the oaks and you create a syndicate with four horses and you win the derby and have a start and the predilection triumph waiting is so good at this moment to me it really is, and and you to it by the sounds of your your huge enthusiasm for the for the sport. I've been fortunate enough to have many big players from German racing on this podcast in the in the last few years, and it seems that there is a really significant shared sense of optimism for the future of the sport in in Germany. Yeah, this, it's not easy uh, in Germany because uh, the government situation with betting is not easy at this moment. But we love our sport. We have a lot of passion for it. We have a lot of owner breeders with a lot of energy. And yeah, we hope we can we can still alive. That's what we have to do at this moment because we lost uh, owners and breeders in the last three years with Corona and, and the, the, the war in, 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 in Ukraine. And that's not good for the sport at this moment. But yeah, we fight for, for German racing. We, we love the sport and we love the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. We love stay at the speed and that's German racing. Lars Wilhelm, thanks so much for talking to me. All the very best on Sunday. Thank you so much. Well, listening to that was uh, Jane Mangan with me here at Goffs. And I think, Jane, first of all, what a, what a wonderfully enthusiastic owner. Lars Wilhelm is. I mean, the, the the race and the sport is clearly very lucky to have someone who's that passionate. And 
you can see why they've got a they've got a serious contender on their hands. I think. Yeah, and and you can see why we'd be thinking why wasn't he in the race all along? Exactly. Um, it doesn't matter now. He's in, and he adds a real layer of intrigue to all an already fascinating race. And he's got a legitimate chance. He's breeder. Philip Stauffenberg is around 100 yards to our right, um, no down at his stable with his lots, um, and it's, it's a great story, the Fantastic Moon story. You're talking about the German record in the race, I don't think we're underestimating them this year. No. I've been guilty of it in the past, but not this year. Uh, listen, he, he might not be good enough, but he was very good in the pre-Niel. It's interesting what um, Lars Wilhelm was saying there, the received wisdom is that Feed the Flame was kind of just just blowing his pipes out really in that race and that, and that Pascal Barry was giving him a Pascal Barry preparation that he's executed to perfection before is that a view you subscribe to? Um, well he and Ace Impact and I've been kind of comparing them all the way along and I just thought the the Ace Impact performance in the Jockey Club was the performance of, of a French horse this year for me uh, it's all over the front page of the, of the Racing Post and other publications how well and how happy they are with Feed the Flame but Ace Impact is the French raider that I think is the is the real home defence yeah and two days ago on this podcast we heard from Ace Impact owner Pauline Shaboub and she wouldn't have done anything to put you off having having watched the horse work that's for sure uh, news yesterday that Spreewell wouldn't run for Jesse Harrington I think he would have been a, a pretty big outsider in the race anyway uh, you heard from Rob Hornby on yesterday's show about Westover I, I was half wondering Jane whether whether Judmont might reach for for Frankie de Tori for for Westover, but I think we're too far down the road now, aren't we? Surely, I mean, Rob's done all the work on him, done his final piece of work. They've they've gone for de Tori before, and John Gosden did say to David Yates at the weekend, he's freelance now, he can do what he wants, but we're too far down the road for a switcheroo, aren't we? I it crossed my mind. I won't lie. Um, particularly after the non-committal statement of John Gosden regarding free win, but I think if he was to ride uh, Westover in the arc, he would have probably sat on him at home by now, and we're unaware whether he has or not, and Rob Hornby has done a marvellous job on him so far this year, so I'd be su- surprised if we were this close to the off and there was a switch, but um, yeah, that, that, that did cross my mind, I won't lie, but it... it it is a little bit disappointing from an Irish perspective that we aren't better represented. I know we're often just reliant on Bally Doyle, but if we're to go on their three-year-old record, continuous doesn't fit the bill. Uh, he's had a obviously a great year and he won the ledger, but it just seems to me like it's a little bit of an afterthought. You say the Irish aren't very well represented, but there is an Irishman and a powerful Irishman in the racing and bloodstock world who is doubly represented in the art with Baybridge and with Plastu Carousel. He shares Baybridge with the Wiggins, he shares Plastu Carousel with Al Shakab Racing. One is a potential stallion for him, the other one is a potential, well, is gonna be a wonderful broodmare. He is, of course, John O'Connor from Bally Lynch Stud, and this is what he said when I caught up with him yesterday here at Goffs. Some of the uh, gold descriptions in France haven't been particularly accurate, I think, uh, but uh, he's not a horse who needs soft ground or heavy ground. He's a horse who can handle you know, any kind of ground that's not mm. extreme. Um, I'm going to leave it up to Sir Michael Stout. Seems a sensible policy. To, uh, to decide you know, whether he wants to go there. He's in two races at, at the weekend, the Pre-Dollar and the Pre-Dollar. He's more likely to go for the Pre-Dollar than he goes for either. Um, 
and like I say, we've got a master trainer, so uh, why double guess him? So he'll decide if he thinks the ground is right. We'll, we'll, we'll walk the track and see how it is. It's funny, isn't it? Because he's he's had a great career this horse. He's won a champion stakes, beating some very good horses. But I think those people who are who are really fond of him have always thought there's a big like breakout massive performance in there still still to come because of his physique yeah he's a wonderful looking horse lots of strength and power and uh, I think Sir Michael says he's he's firing well he's working well so I think there is a breakout performance but if he hasn't already done that I think there's another one in the, in the locker somewhere I know we're casting our eye a long way forward but you know, as and when he comes back to you at, at Bally Lynch and you've got Bayside Boy and other progeny of your new bay as well, can you see in your mind's eye who'll be looking at each horse for different reasons? Yeah, they might be different types. Um, and, you know, we, we don't own the horse entirely, so it's not fair for me to say that he'll come to Bally Lynch for sure. Um, we've got partners and we want to be always fair with our partners. So um, if somebody else really wants to sand the horse you know he could either stand with mm-hmm. us or we could stay involved with somebody else so uh, I'd keep an open mind on that but they'd, they'd have they'd have discreet constituencies the two they probably would yeah, yeah. Probably would. Uh, Bayside Boy was a particularly precocious horse and he was the, uh, in, the in his first run he had the highest uh, time form debut of the year so you know he, he was straight into it um, a bridge is a bigger physique and uh, he worked his way into top form and uh, hopefully there's more to come even from him Um, Plaster Carousel could be one of those classic slipping slightly under the radar horses that Andre Favre's won arcs with before what does he tell you? well he doesn't tell you a huge amount except that he says that's his pretty lark filly so uh, I take that on board and I don't double question him too much when, when did he first sort of give you an indication that that was the way he was thinking? early in the summer I'd say he gave a one run early in Brigana and actually Baybridge ran the same race and uh, they were both having their first run both a little bit fresh on the day they got beaten by horses who had previous runs under their belts but uh, yeah he's been he's been targeting this race for quite a while She's already won the Prix de l'Opera, so we know she acts on the track. And uh, she won the Prix Foy very well, I thought. And, uh, you know, in a race that wasn't run end to end. So she's entitled to take her chance. And if, if the maestro thinks she should be there, well, she can be there. And what's the, what's the medium-term plan with her? What do you think she'll be doing? Or who will she be seeing next spring? Well, I'm pretty sure she'll go to stud. Once again, she's a partnership property. With Al Shikab. Yeah, with Al Shikab. And we'll sit down with them and uh, decide how they want to, to approach her, her broodmare career. And so that, has, that conversation hasn't taken place yet. So after we've done that, we'll know better where we're going. You're in a, you're in a very nice spot this week, aren't you? It must, must feel like quite a nice place to be. Yeah, it's, you know, being in the racing game long enough, we know that you get peaks and troughs and good weeks and bad weeks. Hopefully this is a good week. And, you know, we're coming off a very nice win with another partnership horse, Iberian, in the Champagne Stakes. And he's a very exciting horse to look forward to. He'll probably go for the Jewhurst now. I was um, at Charlie Hills' stable the morning Iberian broke his maiden at Newbury that, that afternoon. And yeah, there was a significant buzz about a, a horse by, again... Another one you know very well, Lope de Vega, breaking his maiden at that stage of the year over six and a half furlongs. Yeah, his dam was uh, a good miler, so uh, this fellow should get a mile without any difficulty. 
but Charlie's always been very high and he works extremely well. I was keen to get that transferred to uh, to the race course and read it in the uh, in the results section, and he's done that now. He was a little bit green when he went to Goodwood; he just got probably you know just outmaneuvered a little bit. Um, but he's a progressive horse. Charlie is very very high, in and uh, so we'll we'll let him go to the Jewers and see how he gets on there. Let me make a plan for him. I should make a point that I did ask John this before I turned record on how manic he was at this sale and he said medium manic so it's very kind of you to spare me the time but I tell me that you're about to go and buy or sell something exciting I'm about to try and get something to eat and then I'm going to, <laughs> and then I'm going to sell quite a few exciting ones okay get it's, your priorities right you need to be fed first it seems a long time since breakfast thanks cheers, a lot. cheers John bye alright that was John O'Connor who had a wonderful end to last year with Bayside Boy and Bay Bridge winning on Champions Day and he could just pull it off in the art with these horses it's the fact that Andre Fab, as he said there in the interview, told him right back at the beginning of the summer, this is my art course. Plastic carousel. Yeah, and it's not as though you know, it's not as though Fab's a back number either. If you look at look how many winners he sent out in the last month, it's a it's a ridiculous number. Fab knows what he's doing. That's a, the most ridiculous statement of the year. Um, yeah, she won on the this day last year on heavy. Mm, in the opera. She's been targeted at the race, and there's plenty to like, but if she beat Hookham and Westover and Ace, in fact, I would be a little bit surprised. I've been surprised before. Uh, we've heard on this podcast from more than one person, you know, the the form this year, and you know, the, the international ratings will sell, tell you the same thing. The form is Hookham and Westover in the King George, when they were clear of King of Steel. I, I think they are two lovely horses. I mean, really... Admirable, admirable horses. But are, is either of them a truly brilliant talent? I, I, I'd almost. I was on Westover last year. I don't know if I can forgive him. I, 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 I don't take this the wrong way. I'd be delighted on a human level if either of them won for their connections. But from a purist point of view, I, there's a bit of me that kind of wants a three-year-old like Ace Impact to blow past them and win by daylight. Mm. But then a part of me tells me that Hookham is just the heavyweight. The performance, the tough performance in the King George. He's running the, was the Brigadier Gerard? Mm. Everybody was just talking about Desert Crown that day, but this fella is good. And he showed he was good at Epsom a couple of years ago. And he came back from an injury that we all thought he'd never return from. So there's probably a, 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 an effect of hidden, being hidden in plain sight with Hookham. Is it too obvious? And how much are we missing Desert Crown? I mean, when you look at how easily he beat Westover in the derby last year, for all Westover was a little bit unlucky. But he, he beat him on the bridle. But was, uh, was Westover fully furnished and at his best? You well, know, some just, horses improve and some horses they do. don't. They do. I, just think, I just think it's such a tragedy what happened to that horse. It really is. It's a tragedy for the derby. Yeah. You, you know, it would be wonderful to see a derby horse come and win the arc. We haven't seen it in quite a while. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think Ace Impact is the right favourite. But I have a lot of respect for Hookham. I was my tip for the race last year was Westover, and it just never looked like it was going to happen. And uh, yeah, I just wouldn't put it past the Germans either to to put it up. All right, Jane. Uh, more news this morning that Desert Hero wouldn't run in the Melbourne Cup. William Haggis will have a, a runner, however, and a fancied one in the Group One two-year-old feature at Newmarket this weekend for Phillies, the Chevy Park Stakes. Relief Rally, the Pocket Rocket. She goes again. Will she win again? I can't see past her. Um, there's no, for me, the Jasmine Secret, Soprano, Porta Fortuna, they're all good, but this Philly's 
very good. Uh, I, I think it's her race and I've been impressed by her all year. She should be really unbeaten bar what happened to her at Ascot. She's knee high to a grasshopper but she's full of heart and uh, yeah, this is... While I can't really quantify the Jasna's secret form coming from France, uh, she's the obvious choice and she's clear top of the market at the moment. All right, that is relief rally. What about the middle part, Van Dijk against River Tiber? Which way do you see this one going? Yeah, at the moment they're joint favourites. I can't see why because Van Dijk has superior form and performances and his morning performance puts him well ahead of River Tiber who, okay, maybe had excuses on the day. We knew pre-race that they had Team Coolmore had aired some caution. But uh, Van Dijk's three from three, I think he deserves to be favoured. Task forces in there, Jasur for Clive Cox and Lake Forest for William Haggis. But Van Dijk is the obvious choice for me if he turns up the way he was in France. Uh, we're here at Goffs. It was a, an enjoyable day yesterday. It's wet and horrible today. Aside from what I've already mentioned, Phil Stauffenberg selling Fantastic Moon's sister, lot 373, which is a, a wonderful bit of symmetry today. Uh, what else are you looking forward to? Um, well, there were some good lots yesterday. There's some very good lots today. Uh, you mentioned off-air the full sister to Saffron Beach will be attracting a lot of customers, I'd imagine, to Bally Lynch Stud. There's a lovely Frankel from the, uh, I think, sister to Tilsit down in Camus Park. She's lovely. There's a Baroda, See the Stars, Philly from the Nearcos family. Um, slight tinge of sadness yesterday watching some of the Nearcos stock make a lot of money. I was... You know, they're major owner breeders. I hope they're not going anywhere. I hope, obviously, it's it's a real question mark at the moment what's happening to the restructuring process. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of real star lots in today, and yesterday there was a good bit of buzz around. But the numbers were back 10% on average and median, so hopefully they catch up today. All right. Well, no sooner is this week done than racing's travelling sales circus moves on and moves on a pace. To park paddocks next week with the start of the Tattersall's yearling sales. Uh, well, the start of the, the Tattersall's yearling sales. Of course, we've already had the Somerville Tattersall sale, but of course, book one kicks off on Tuesday. Jimmy George, the marketing director from Tattersall's, uh, joins me now. Jimmy, I'd imagine huge excitement in, in Newmarket at, at what is to come. Yes, Nick, always a time of year that we look forward to enormously and uh, obviously as do a huge number of other people as well, but one of the October yearling sale at Hansel's kicks off two weeks of, uh, two pretty solid weeks of yearling sales at the Park Paddocks, our base in Newmarket and uh, it's an outstanding catalogue as you'd expect from Europe's premier yearling sale and uh, I think it's fair to say it features more yearlings by the best turf size in the world and I suppose what, what's really interesting everybody going around the sales this year is who are the key players, who are the key buyers, who can we expect uh, to really sort of drive the top end of the market up? When you've looked around, what are you, what are you hoping and expecting to see next week? I guess what you hope to see is, is diversity and a really good spread of buyers at all levels of the market. So, you know, the very top of the market, um, you know, 
you'd expect to be dominated by some of the, the traditional superpowers, obviously, Sheikh Mohammed's Godolphin team, um, the Coolmore team, and Sheikh Issa's resurgent uh, Shadwell Estates, as well as as well as buyers from throughout the Gulf region, Qatar, Bahrain, and obviously um, high-end high-end Japanese participation as well. I guess one of the features of recent years, if I was to pinpoint a year, it was probably 2017 when uh, the, um, the, the the Mike Ryan Chad Brown axis took dead aim at one of the October yearling sales for the first time and uh, with spectacular results um, and uh, so since then the American presence of one of the October yearling sales has been very very significant as well so you hope to see very very diverse international participation but equally very very strong domestic British and Irish and, and wider European this is a happy very happy hunting ground at all levels of the market and a lot of that is driven I think by the by the um, unbelievably popular October one bonus scheme which rewards owners in an unprecedented way and we've increased the bonus to £25,000 this year again to its original level which basically means that anybody winning a class four or better two-year-old maiden or novice in, in, in England or in Britain or a, an open maiden in Ireland will win pretty well in every pretty well in every case in excess of 30,000 sterling and in some cases more than 14,000 sterling for winning their maiden which is huge and, uh, and a big part of what brings people to, to book one of the October yearlings out these days. And obviously we will be uh, covering all the tassels books on on this podcast but it, yeah but one clearly is the sexy sale it's the headline sale it's the one where you know the, the bloodstock industry can you know reach beyond the bloodstock pages if you like and pe- people love nothing more than watching watching rich people spend an awful lot of money um but that is not to to belittle what follows because what follows is a, is a really really key part of uh, of what makes the industry go round on a day-to-day basis yeah, I mean, look, books two, three, and four of the October yearling sale at Talisalls are huge fixtures in their own right. And, um, you know, look, last year, book two produced the outstanding Derby winner, uh, Desert Crown, who, who came from that sale and uh, demonstrates the depth that Marshall finds throughout the two weeks of the October yearling sale here. It's a, it's a massive two weeks for Talisalls and for the town of the market where, where it, it very much reinforces new market status as the hub of the European thoroughbred industry. And uh, look, book two, as I say, the likes of Desert Crown, Emily Upjohn, who came from book two, purchased for only um, 60,000 guineas, and the likes of star two-year-old this year, Iberian, who was a book two graduate last year. Look, the quality permeates throughout the two weeks and that's what brings people uh, <coughs> to Tavisals in that period. Um, you know, we're, we're welcoming buyers who will, will come for the, the, the part of the sale which suits their budget and suits their requirements. So there's a changing cast of buyers as the two weeks evolve. Jimmy, thanks so much for your time. All the very best. Pleasure, Nick, as ever. Well, it couldn't be more appropriate given that we are in the meat of sales season the the latest uh, work to come off the um, extraordinarily prolific Francis uh, literary um, anvil is entitled No Reserve and it's set in Newmarket and centres around Tattersall sales which of course are, are next week 
Um, Felix Francis is is with me now. Uh, Felix, I was just thinking back through all your books and and all your father Dick's books before before that, and wondered how many times that the auction house had been the the absolutely central part of them. Well, this is the first time that uh, the the new market sales have been. Uh, my father wrote a book many years ago about a, a, a bloodstock agent, and that was based around the Ascot sales. This is the first time that Newmarket has appeared, which is a surprise to me as, as much as it is to you. After all, there are 56 books now, so you'd have thought I'd used it before or he would have done. But it's, uh, um, it, I, I spent a lot of time last year at the sales uh, in the summer of 22 and October 22. And uh, my main character is an auctioneer. He, the book opens with him auctioneering a, ho- auctioning a horse for... Uh, three million guineas and then he overhears a conversation which implies that the, there was collusive bidding and the bidding was unrealistically built uh, highlighted and then the following morning the horse is found dead in its box and my character Theo Jennings sets out to uh, investigate but someone wants to stop him and will go to any lengths to do so. And obviously, you've, you've tried to sort of keep pace and modernise with the way that the sport has has moved forward but will will devotees of of this i don't want to call it a franchise but this series will they be familiar with themes that have run all the way through since the very beginning oh i think so yes the the main character is uh, is honorable and courageous um uh, my father has uh, felt that the the two most important uh, um things for for anyone in life was loyalty and courage and he was full of both, and I think that the character is the same. And uh, yes, I think they will. It's a it's a a fight of, of good against evil, and and uh, well, let's hope that good comes out on the, on top in the end. But uh, yeah, I think they'll find that it's in keeping. It has a Dick Francis novel on the front of the cover. Uh, that's my choice because I feel as much that he is, even though he's been dead now for 13 years he's as much as part of my books as i feel a part of all of his and yes uh, i i think that uh, devotees of the dick francis uh, genre will, will will be happy with it i certainly am and no reserve you are signing copies of no reserve at the national horse racing museum on wednesday october the 4th so right in the middle of book one yes on the wednesday we're having uh, it, it's a book signing but it's also a celebration I'll be speaking about the book. There will be wine and, and canapes. Tickets are available uh, from the National Horse Racing Museum website. And uh, it's after the sale, so it's 7.30 in the evening. I'll be speaking about the book at 8 o'clock, and I hope that many people will come along and uh, listen to me, have a glass of wine with me, and maybe buy a copy of the book, and I'll sign it for them. Fantastic. Felix, thanks so much for your time. I wish you all the very best with it. Thanks, Nick. Well, good luck to Felix Francis. It was incredibly heartening to receive all your feedback last week on our uh, first part of our nutrition series with Kentucky Equine Research and Saracen Horse Feeds. Now to part two, which is specific to sales season. Welcoming in once again the founder of KER, Dr. Joe Pagan, and the director of Thoroughbred Nutrition from Saracen, Polly Bonner. Polly, I might start with you if I can. We're going to move on and talk about the difference between UK and US thoroughbreds physiologically shortly. But uh, to come to you first... How, how do you begin preparing uh, a yearling for sale in terms of what you feed it? Okay, so for the client base that we're working with, 
we generally have got the horses on the farm all the time so that we can build up to it. We obviously do have some um, clients where they will do an eight-week prep, let's say, if the horses are coming in from outside. But the majority of the time, the horses have been on the farm the whole time. There's already been a plan been made. Um, well, from from foals and weanlings, the plan has been made, really. It starts that early. So it's been that bit easier to to deal with from that perspective. I guess one of the things that's worth bringing up at this point is what an incredibly different weather pattern we've had this summer versus last. So the two of those extremes have meant that we have probably done things a little differently. It's rained and rained and rained. So there's been a lot more grass that the horses have come in from. So probably the majority have come in in a better body condition than they would have done last year when everything was burnt off and brown. That was more challenging from that perspective. But generally speaking, the majority of people would probably be doing an eight to 10 week prep that obviously is quite an intense time in a young horse's life. And you've got to help them through it while educating them at the same time so that they're going to be ready for when they've got to peak as they ship in at the end of this week for book one. So how does it change then between those early summer months and, and the preparatory time? How does what you feed them change? What do you start doing? We might use slightly different combinations of, of ingredients and feed materials on certain horses. Um, some of it to a degree we're feeding to a body type. So if we know that these are more likely to be the classic sort of horses that generally speaking are mm -hmm. coming out of book one, we probably are feeding them in a slightly different way to those sharp two-year-olds you know, that are going to be precocious and tend to be a shorter, more compact body type than the taller, rangier ones that you know are going to run over a longer distance. So we'll we'll look at different ways to get the best musculature on those horses, a nice body condition without them being too heavy, because that's one thing. They can't go up there as show horses. They're, they're, they've been bred to race and that's what they need to do. And we need to give the buyers a nice visual feel of what they're buying also to match it up as much as possible with the stallion. People would like to see a stallion who stamps his stock. I find this fascinating because I must confess this had escaped me because I've never been hands-on involved in the preparation of a yearling. So you say a, a shorter back, butty, compact type of sprinter would actually be mm -hmm. fed differently to a more rangy classic type, see the stars or Frankel or Dubawi or, or, or whatever. Can you Can you be a bit more granular there? Pun completely, okay. <laughs> pun completely intended. I mean, what 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 are actually the different types of of materials that would be going into those horses, or what what balance of materials would be going into them that that would vary? Okay, well, obviously, fibre is going to be important, whichever body type you're looking at. Um, making sure that we've got those levels correct, partly to keep them comfortable within their own gut, because we are asking quite a lot of them at this point in time. We've changed their environment. They will still get some paddock time, but they're not hanging out with all their friends in the paddock in the usual way. They're actually having to stand in a box and be boxed overnight a lot of the time and cope with the start of work and education. So things are changing quickly for them. But for example, we we 
We always want a certain amount of oil in their diet, partly because it's going to help put body condition on, but also we want a good shine to their coat. But if you give a sprinter type who's quite compact too much oil, then you have too much body condition and they just get top heavy, which isn't going to be um, quite what we're looking for in terms of them having a nice streamlined shape. Yeah, because then they just look like a little bit so yeah. Correct, yeah. correct. Or, you know, a bit too show horsey, which isn't going to appeal. So we'll possibly be moderating the oil level going into those horses where the taller, rangier, longer backed type of horse, we need a certain amount to fill that frame. So it's just making those plans for those horses so that we fill them up appropriately and at the right pace, if you like, because some horses will just go through a very straightforward prep and not have anything that might slow them up or set them back. Other horses may not find it quite so easy and you've got to be able to give yourself enough time so that everybody can peak at the right moment and at the same stage. There's a good deal more nuance to this than perhaps we we could ever realise. Um, Joe Pagan, we spoke last year a little bit about some studies that you'd undertaken that talked about the fundamental differences between the sort of yearlings that turn up at an American auction and the sort of yearlings that turn up at a, a European auction. Is it true to say that, dare I say it like everything in America, yours are bigger? <laughs> uh, actually, it's turning out that that may be true. Um, so let me let me say why I think that's true. First, when we're looking at raising a racehorse, there's three, really three different metrics that we're trying to, boxes that we're trying to tick. Skeletal soundness, their sales performance, and then the racetrack performance. And hopefully all three of those go together. So understanding how to make those three work is really important. Over the last 30 years, we've had the good fortune of working with some companies and farms all around the world to see how thoroughbred horses grow with hallway feeds and Steve Cadell first here in Kentucky with Saracen in Europe, uh, in Australia and in Japan, in India, even we've seen how these horses grow. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the relative size that yes, they are bigger in America, but I'm going to put it into the, uh, the, the, units of percentiles of the population. So anybody who has a child and goes to the pediatrician, they're going to say it's a certain percentile for weight and height. We've done the same thing for thoroughbred horses, but we've used a database of 47,000 foals, thoroughbred foals from all over the world. So we can then say how big a foal is at a specific time and gender relative to this entire population. So you can take percentiles, which is one to a hundred and make them quartiles, the bottom 25%, the next 25%, the next, and the fourth quartile are the biggest 25%. So now let's talk about how big are yearlings in Kentucky sales yearlings versus sales yearlings in UK. We first published a paper on the, the Kentucky yearlings back in 2006 and bigger sold better. The horses that sold the best were in the fourth quartile for the population. So they were bigger. This was in 2006. It continues today. 
a lot of those seven-figure yearlings that we saw at Keeneland this year were in the fourth quartile. They're great big foals. We combined our data looking at the sales, the elite sales in UK with, with Saracen and the data they've done, and we found something completely different. The horses that sold best, the top 10% of horses that sold in UK were in the second quartile for body weight second versus fourth. And if you put that into, uh, go away from quartiles for second and put it in kilos, there was a difference of about 20 to 25 kilos of body weight between the two. Height-wise though, there wasn't that much different. Both of them, the ones that sold the best were about in the third quartile. So above the median, but not great big uh, rangy horses. Now, I should say, this is where the greatest percent were sold. There are good horses that sell for a lot of money, that race well in the first quartile and the fourth quartile. So you can't generalize that they have to be in, in a single one, but they were different between UK and the US. So we said, okay, that's interesting, but how did they run? When we looked at them and compared as top 10% of earnings, stakes winners, it held exactly the same. The highest percentage of stakes winners came from the fourth quartile in the US and the second quartile in UK. And the best stakes horses were in the third quartile for weight. So they're different in UK than they were than they are in Kentucky. And is that is that simply a dirt and turf predilection? Do you think that we're used to these these heavy yeah, it, that you need it for, for a dirt machine and a slightly lighter frame model, although no less in terms of height for a for a turf machine? That's what we think. But let's go back historically a little. One of the things, if we look at how big these horses were, I'm talking about today. But let's go back 30 years or even 50 years and look at how big they are. We published our first paper on thoroughbred growth in 1996, and it was from crops from 93, 94, and 95. When we looked at those yearlings compared to now in the in Kentucky, basically the same farms, they were about 5% lighter in, in the 1990s than they are now. Those yearlings looked a lot like the UK yearlings now. From 1995, I even dug deeper. I went back and looked at some great data. My major professor at Cornell had gathered at Winfields back in the 1960s and 70s. And think about what was coming from Winfields at, at that point in time. And those yearlings actually were about the same as the ones that we measured in the early 1990s. We've also looked at stallions, and we looked at stallions back then in nineteen in the early 1990s. And compared to the stallions now, the stallions in Kentucky that we that uh, that I'm talking about are considerably heavy heavier than the stallions that we had in 1990. They're not fatter in all of these instances I'm talking about. We've measured condition score also. They're not any fatter. They're a smidgen taller now. But I mean, we're talking a tenth of a hand difference in, in size over that 20-year period. So the Kentucky thoroughbred has become heavier over the last 30 years. 
is that a, a dirt thing? Is it the it's it's the types of stallions we're selecting? They're bigger, so there is a difference. So I mean, it may be the horse for the course type situation, but they truly are um, different between the yearlings in UK and the yearlings in Kentucky. And and all this begs the question, Joe. And it, you don't have to be a, a genius to work out what the next question is going to be. If American style yearlings look like X and European style yearlings look like Y, um, are Y sounder than X? And is this why American racing is having a, a an increasing problem with um, high profile equine fatalities? We've got to be careful because the instance of catastrophic injury and fatality is actually overall decreasing. But clearly, we're getting these very high profile spikes at the very top level. That are in that are in public view. Has that got anything to do with the type of horses that we're we're producing? I don't know that we can really connect those dots right now. For first of all, we're talking about such completely different styles of racing, training, and surface that it's kind of hard to to say. We know that the that our our data shows that the American uh, thoroughbred is bigger than it was before. And it's bigger than the European thoroughbred. Uh, that's all we can say with certainty. Uh, whether that actually leads to any issues in soundness, I think that's that's going to be a really tough one to uh, understand. And it's not a specific question we've really asked. The questions we've asked have been size and racing performance. Are they stakes winners? Are they millionaires? That sort of thing. And the big ones fall into that category. Are they the soundest or the least soundest? We haven't asked that question. And I, and I would be very um, careful to drop, jump to any conclusions from the data that, that we've got anyway. Uh, Dr. Joe Pagan, there, from whom I always learn an enormous amount. Another man from whom I learn an enormous amount is J.A. McGrath, the croc. And here he is with his bulletin from Hong Kong. Nick, Tony Cruz has never been far away from the headlines in Hong Kong racing, and I'm going back nearly 50 years before his time in Europe. You'll remember him as the uh, one of uh, Triptych's jockeys, famous for his win in the champion stakes at Newmarket in the 80s. But I digress. Cruz has announced this week that Hugh Bowman will replace Zach Purton as the jockey for California Spangle, who's the defending Hong Kong mile champion. Tony wants commitment, and Zach is not able to give that commitment. Cruz says he wants a rider who'll ride California Spangle in all his races this season, and Purton, it has to be said, always has plenty of options, including the exciting Beauty Eternal, who will be a major player in the big races this season. Zach is clearly playing the field. Step forward, Huey Bowman, who takes over now on California Spangle, a son of Star Spangled Banner, who will be right up there with the best on his day, that's for sure. Bowman and Purton, they lock horns again today at Happy Valley. There's a nine-race card at the Valley under lights, and uh, there's some good racing there as well. I think Zach's best chance is in race four, number five, Turin Mascot. Now, this horse comes over from Ireland originally, was trained there by Joseph O'Brien, where he won three of his five races, including a handicap at the Curra over a mile. 
Well, he's proven over the staying trips in Hong Kong, and this nine furlongs trip is going to suit him. So race four, number five, Turin Mascot, to beat number four, SJ Tourbillon, who's trained by Douglas White and ridden by Lyle Hewitson. Uh, SJ Tourbillon, by the way, was a former stablemate of uh, Turin Mascot in Hong Kong, but Turin Mascot has now switched to Pierre Ng. Now, Hugh Bowman has a big chance in race seven on number eight, Togepi, who's trained by a new trainer in Hong Kong. That's Cody Mo. Cody Mo was a longtime assistant to uh, Tony Cruz, and he's, uh, I think this is only his fourth runner as a trainer, Togepi. So far, he's yet to greet the judge, but um, he's certainly well thought of, the trainer, and uh, he should do well. He's got a fairly good team. Uh, Togepi was formerly trained by Tony Millard, the South African, who uh, relinquished his licence and left for his homeland earlier in the year. So race seven, number eight, Togepi to win, to beat number eight, I should say number one, Baby Crystal, and take them in a tote swinger. Uh, Later on in race eight, number six, Hoss, should win for Purton and for Jamie Richards, the New Zealand trainer. So that's all on the Hong Kong beat this week. I'll have more for you next week. All right, thanks to the croc. Thanks to all my guests today. As I said, great news that Fantastic Moon and Continuous have been supplemented for Saturday, uh, Sunday's even Qatar Prix de Lauda Triumph. Getting ahead of myself. I wanted to come so soon. Uh, Jane Mangan is still with me and she has a tip for you. Yes, I'm going off to Goodwood and this is the last time for my Prospero. If he doesn't get across the line, I'll be, I'll be getting off that You're horse. not, honestly, you're not. What, what price is my Prospero today? I don't know. Yeah. Is he that? Is he that short? Have they got? Have they got the cheap pieces on? They were going to run him in the cheap pieces at air the other day. No, he doesn't have cheap pieces. On. Said the ground. Said the ground was too soft, so they were going to run him in cheap pieces. They've not got him in cheap pieces today. In the foundation stakes, listed, he's eleven to ten on. If there was an odds-on favourite, I want to take on is definitely this beast. Okay. We're going to go head to head, and it's soft ground at Goodwood today. They pulled him out because it was softer air. I'm confused. Are you confused? But he's a confusing horse. I'm seriously confused. Does, what, what's his right trip? What does he want to do? Does he want to be a racehorse? He's just full of ability. He has any amount of ability. Well, if he doesn't win at these weights today, then there really will be a bit of head scratching. So my Prospero for Jane in the 340 at Goodwood Curra, to make you all rich. I was at the Curra last sun- Sunday. We had 150 to one winner to Cesar, which anything can happen. Yeah. As I said at the time, trained by a little-known guy called Joseph O'Brien. Fancy that. Right. That's it from here at Goss. We'll be back to do it all over again tomorrow. Um, but for now, from Jane and from me... And from all the team, that was Wednesday, the 27th of September. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.